This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Welcome back to another edition of No Stop Lights. I want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Finns, Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op, Schofields, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. We'll elaborate um, on the sponsors in just a couple of minutes. I want to make sure we thank um, those. We thank you who have subscribed and liked our, our early days of podcasting. Um, it's obvious we've got to get better at this. Um, we anticipate getting a little bit better at this. But one of the ways we gauge and measure success is by the number of likes and subscribers we have. I've done a lousy job of explaining to the listeners and viewers how you can become a subscriber of No Stoplights. So when I don't know anything, I mean, I've got to the age in life that I know what I don't know, and when I don't know something, I find people who can't explain it uh, and articulate it much better than I. I've got this sidekick on an early morning radio show that we do called Wake Up Carolina, Dave Baker. Dave is affectionately known as the Rev. Now he's not very affectionate about the the nickname, but but I like it. And um and I'm going to let him. I'm gonna. I'm going to let him elaborate on exactly um how you can become a subscriber to No Stop Slots with Wake Up Carolina. Some of the different um formats and mediums and platforms we're on, and when we release our latest greatest edition of No Stop Lots. So. Thank you for listening. This is my first appearance on the podcast. Now, it's here, not so. really an appearance. It would be more of a verbal role. Well, you know, you, you do point that out because I, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm the voice off camera right now. And if you're listening on one of your, uh, on your favorite podcast platform, I'm just the voice. I'm just here talking with Ken's, but we're asking you for a subscription. And if you're watching on YouTube, the like, the subscribe, comment, Give us suggestions in the comment session uh, section. We appreciate all of the interaction, and uh, and we're off to a, a a start in the podcast. We just have a, a handful of videos out there, and all of the uh, response so far, and all of your comments are very much appreciated. Please keep it up and interact with us as much as you can because it'll help us grow, and that's what it's all about for us. So how about that? How about that? Yep. So did you tell them what uh, is it? Is it Spotify? Is it YouTube? Well, it- see the way this works. Now this is different than we're used to live radio and live interaction. So the podcast has already been published to the platforms, and therefore someone that's hearing us right now has already li- is listening to it on their favorite platform of choice, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcast or iHeartRadio. So all of those, wherever you're listening to us, you know where you get your podcasts, and you, you probably already subscribed already. That's how you knew this episode was available. And if you're watching on YouTube, again, it's just a click uh, for a subscription, and the notification bell will give you notifications whenever we publish a new video. By the way, podcasts are published, uh, are scheduled to be published twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays around that 10 That would be bi-weekly. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. If you say so. Very well explained. Yeah. Thank you. The, boy, um, the voice off camera will shut up now. And, and, and now it's time for the genius and expert to get back to work. Um, I do step aside <laughs> for mere mortals from time to time, but now it's time for the genius to get back at yes. work and enlighten Please. Uh, the masses as I intend to here yes. in a couple of seconds. Um, for those of you, I mean, Rev has explained how you can like and subscribe to the podcast. The name No Stop Lights, where does that come from? The, uh, I am a former lieutenant governor of South Carolina. I unceremoniously was removed from office after violating campaign finance laws. If you want to know the rest of the story, um, Google it, look it up. It'll blame me for everything um, this side of climate change, I would imagine, or global warming. Um, and I'm okay with that. But um, but I, I, my story's a bit weird, unique. Um, 
I'll, I'm from the private sector. I'm, I'm a business owner. I was raised in a family business in, in a town called Pamplico, South Carolina. Pamplico is a small town in rural South Carolina without a stoplight. And when I ran for lieutenant governor, every candidate imaginable, we all had blue suits and red ties, black suits and blue ties, and we all were going to better educate your kid. We're going to demonstrate physical restraint. We're going to restore order to the um, uh, to the to the sanity of American uh, politics. And and it's easy to get lost in the, I don't know, just lost in the shuffle of candidates who say the same thing, uh, by and large, look the same way. I got elected to um, lieutenant governor of South Carolina the same time Nikki Haley got elected governor of South Carolina. Tim Scott was actually a um, uh, an early candidate for lieutenant governor in South Carolina. Trey Gowdy ran for Congress in 2010 um, in South Carolina. Mick Mulvaney, who eventually worked in the Trump administration, uh, ran against John Spratt. Of the other. Kind of a weird um, class of, um, of, of Republican candidates in South Carolina. Uh, they've gone on to bigger and better things in the political world. I think I've got a better life by second guessing what people like like them do in the way and the way they go about their business. But but back to the name. When when I when I decided to run, I tried to figure out a way to distinguish myself from some of the other candidates. And and I can remember real quick story about running for county council. I ran for county council in a district that had never ever elected a Republican. Um, I ran as a Republican. Uh, against the advice of, I don't know, the three or four people that I trusted in matters relating to politics. Um, I won that seat and and got encouraged to run for lieutenant governor of South Carolina. I had a, a kind of a business perspective. I was very pragmatic in my worldviews. I'm conservative. I'm unapologetically conservative, but but I'm, I'm kind of a, um, I'm a hodgepodge. I am a, a very pragmatic person with conservative roots and values. I've got a bit of a libertarian streak about me. Um, but but when I ran for lieutenant governor, once again, uh, elaborating on the previous comment, uh, everybody was saying the same damn thing, and I couldn't get any traction. So I began to try and create somewhat of a personality, and a part of my personality was um, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. Take what I say for what it's worth. And it kind of, I mean, it worked. It really did. I went on to win that race. Um, a couple of nuggets of information that I think you would find a bit interesting. Um, when I when I decided to run for county council in 2004, I had to go register to vote. That's right. I was not even a registered voter when I decided to pursue a, um, not a career in politics, but, but a job in politics. I'd gotten real frustrated with local government about some of the regulations, mandates, stipulations that they were requiring of my family business in the private sector. So I go get registered to vote. I win that seat in 2004. In 2006, some of the big wheels, the big shots in Republican politics in South Carolina um, sat me down, if you will, and said, we need um, a business guy to consider running for a statewide office. And, um, and, and the rest, as they say in Paris and Pamplico, is histoire. The first session of South Carolina Senate, I ever witnessed, I presided over. So, so the first time I ever voted in my life, I voted for myself as a candidate for Florence County Council. Um, I don't apologize for that. I didn't care much for politics uh, prior to that. The um, the responsibility of, one of the responsibilities Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina had, doesn't have that responsibility any longer. They, they run in tandem now. In other words, nah, Henry McMaster ran on a ticket with Pamela Yvette. 
when I ran, it was Nikki Haley running for governor and, and Ken Ard running for lieutenant governor. Uh, I was a Republican nominee. Obviously, she was the Republican nominee for governor. But one of the responsibilities of the lieutenant governor in South Carolina was to preside over the state Senate. So the first session of the Senate in South Carolina I ever saw, I presided over. Um, Jerry Clower, famous Southern comedian, the late Jerry Clower, says the first college football game he ever saw he played in. I can relate to that. The first session of South Carolina Senate I ever witnessed, I presided over. So uh, I'm unapologetically rural. I'm unapologetically Southern. Um, I have a bit of an accent in case you haven't um, detected. I don't uh, I don't flaunt it, but I don't um, deny it. I don't hide from it. It is it is what it is. But but I do think that if you'll um, if you'll give us an opportunity, we'll prove to um, to you, uh, viewer, and we hope subscriber, that we we care enough about the issues to try and understand at a serious and complicated level. My wife refers to me as the most complicated, simple man God ever made. I think that's a compliment. I'm not sure, but I think she means that somewhat, somewhat complimentary. So let's try this to see if we can um, gain a little trust and support of a viewing and listening audience. There are three issues in American politics today that I think are uh, paramount and, and very newsworthy, very centric to the political debate and discourse in America today. One is, obviously, Donald Trump. I mean, as long as Trump's on the scene, he's going to be a relevant political figure. He's unlike anybody I've ever seen before. He is a political blunt instrument. He is a one-man wrecking crew. He is the, um, the, the biggest motivator to turn out for and against that, that American politics has ever had. I understand some of that. I mean, I get that Trump cuts both ways. He is um, he's narcissistic. He can be vulgar. He can be indecent. He can be irreverent. But, but it's something the American political uh, observer, I mean the voter, the voter in general were looking for somebody who didn't sound nor act like everybody else. So you've got Donald Trump uh, potentially indicted in New York, the Southern District of New York, the New York DA, is, um, is considering whether or not to indict Donald Trump and eventually arrest Donald Trump and he'll face some sort of, of criminal charge. Will it be a misdemeanor and, um, and, and you know, uh, misrepresenting a business expense? Will it be a felony and a violation of campaign finance? It's pretty odd that we're going to set American precedent on uh, indicting a former president or sitting president or a, um, a candidate for president on a, um, a third-rate misdemeanor, but it is what it is. And the aide, excuse me, the, um, the district attorney in New York ran, um, you know, saying that if given the opportunity, he was going to indict Donald Trump. So nobody should be surprised by that. Uh, I think Trump wins if he's indicted. Um, and that's going to be a big story. There's no doubt about it. If we've got a, a former president, current candidate, and front runner of one of the two major political parties um, under threat of indictment, that's a big-ass deal. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We've got another story that is beginning to evolve, and that is the Oversight Committee of James Comer beginning to investigate um, the Bidens. Now, now, here's some interesting information, because once again, a lot of what Trump is dealing with is conjecture. It's speculation. We don't know exactly um you know what, what is true and what's not true we know that trump paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to keep a woman quiet about an affair that she says they have there's no disputing that I mean, there's no doubt that donald trump paid one hundred thirty thousand dollars to make stormy daniels i mean it would be a um i think we had somebody explain it in, in a pretty appropriate way it would be a non-disclosure in normal business practice but with Donald Trump, it's hush money because, once again, he's not exactly the media darling. 
that um that a Barack Obama was or a Bill Clinton was or for that matter uh, maybe even a Ronald a Ronald Reagan was. But there's this other story, and I'm trying to get my hands on some notes here about the um about the Biden family. That there there's a there's subpoenaed bank records now that the oversight has in their possession that that clearly show that a Chinese energy company paid the Biden family about $3 million. Now, now I don't want to go into great detail because I told you there's a bigger story out there that I want to pay attention to. We try to explain as briefly as we can the situation with Donald Trump. The story with Joe Biden is very interesting because his son, his daughter-in-law, his brother have clearly been paid by a Chinese energy company. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, what did they do? I would be speculating. It would be complete and total conjecture. But there's no doubt that Joe Biden, excuse me, the family of Joe Biden has been paid um, fairly handsomely by a Chinese energy company. Um, there's a paper trail here, but subpoena bank records clearly show $3 million from a Chinese energy company, goes to a couple of other subsidiaries, ends up in the bank accounts of the Biden family. We'll follow that closely, but but I still don't believe, I mean, Trump, as I said, is not just a big story, it's a big-ass story. And then you got the Biden Chinese story that I think is is going to eventually be a big story. The, the, the mainstream media probably won't cover this as um, as in-depth as they will Trump. Imagine that. But um, but but the biggest story in America today, as far as I'm concerned, is the the situation with the banks. I'm not an economist. I'm not a professor. I'm not a banker. I'm a business guy who is, once again, um, whose political opinions have been shaped by events and experiences and a, and, a, and a pretty good understanding of the economy. I like to tell people what I know about the economy. I didn't learn at a um, at a seminar where they give you a, a Diet Pepsi or a Mountain Dew Zero and a, a ham sandwich and a and a, you know a, a brownie wrapped in in, uh, in plastic wrap. I mean, I've lived it and and I, and I've learned a lot about the economy through living it, not in a, in an academic or scholarly um, sort of fashion. But but if you really go back to uh, the fundamentals of the banking situation. I think the majority of Americans, I mean, if you're watching this podcast, then you're probably a little more aware than most Americans. I think the majority of you listening to my voice, uh, as I intently look into this camera, uh, are aware that the government has, since 2008, been in the business of manipulating or distorting the economy. Uh, I could argue very easily that the last vote Congress took in a, in a matter relating to the economy, was the, the Troubled Asset Relief Plan of 2008, the bailout. Um, the, the bailout of the banks, we had subprime lending, we had a mortgage meltdown, we had j- just a, a, a big disaster in the housing sector. Um, the banks were participatory, the borrower was participatory, the construction companies. I mean, everybody's got a little blood on their hands from what happened in 2008. But if you really go back to 2008, and, and, and move forward, and and you watch what the Fed has done, you watch what the Treasury has done, you watch what the FDIC is in the process of doing, it's hard to argue that the way we've governed the economy is not anti-democratic. Why do I say that? Who elects the Fed chair? I mean, we the people don't. Who elects the Treasury, uh, the, the, um, the Secretary of Treasury? We the people don't. And we do indirectly. We elect the president. The president appoints a treasury secretary. So in the most indirect way imaginable, some of these administrators, some of these um, uh, department heads, 
so, some of these um, experts in the field of finance, I mean, they are beholden to the people that we elect. But but the biggest problem in America today that I perceive is that the, the U.S. Congress, and I'm talking about the federal government, I'm not talking about state, and I'm not talking about local government. The federal government has shirked its responsibility to create economic policy and be held accountable to the economic policy that they pass. Um, the government has the responsibility to appropriate. The legislative branch has the responsibility to appropriate funds, and, uh, and we're spending about a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. I'm rounding off. It could be $800 billion one year, $1.2 trillion uh, the next year, but we're somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion-dollar margin between our revenues and our expenditures. Uh, we're upside down in the business world. And, and, and I think the, the, the most telling commentary I could give is, um, I mean, obviously the Fed chair does what they do, and, and they're in the business of fiat currency and quantitative easing, uh, a little bit of quantitative tightening now, and, um, but, but, but it's a monetary policy and employment. Now, now, personally, I think the Fed should be tasked with one responsibility, and that is monetary policy. I don't think the Fed should have anything at all to do with unemployment. I think they should uh, address inflation via monetary policy. Personally, um, I think the Fed should be abolished, but, but I'm not king. I don't get in my way. That's asking a lot, but I think the Fed has been far more damaging to the state of affairs of the average American and their existence in our free market economy than they have been uh, beneficial. So I'm on the record. I mean, I think to, um, I mean, a full review, a full vetting, a full better understanding of the Federal Reserve, and if you're honest with yourself, um, I think it will lead us to abolish the Fed and create another system of which we um, address and monitor, you know, the monetary supply issues in our economy. But 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 I want to go back to the anti-democratic way. I mean, that's kind of a red meat word on conservative uh, media. But but the 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 Fed, the 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 United States Congress is elected by we the people. They are to appropriate. They are to work budgets through committees and subcommittees and debates. And um, and out of that comes, uh, and if, it's, if it's a trillion dollars upside down, then they're held accountable to the public. Tell the people, hey, I'm a member of Congress, and I voted on a budget that spends a trillion dollars we don't have. But but instead of Congress doing that, they've deferred to continuing resolutions and omnibus bills, and, and out of that comes, you know, the Fed uh, basically working with Congress to make sure those um, those debt obligations are secured by some degree. I mean, we call it government finance, but it's really fiat currency is money created out of thin air. That's the anti-democratic uh, point that I'm trying to make. Congress has shirked its responsibility. The Fed has stepped in, and once again, the Fed is not elected by we the people. Therefore, economic policy is not democratic in nature. That leads me down this road. Uh, last week, Silicon Valley Bank um, got in financial trouble, and we realized very quickly that the Fed was probably, or the federal government, not the Fed, but the um, the Treasury Secretary, the FDIC, the Fed Chair, were probably going to intervene and 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 save the day. But they were going to, once again, my words are distort and manipulate uh, the realities of the free market. The free market has a certain animal instinct that is required. There has to be moral hazard. There has to be failure. There has to be success. There has to be those realities, or we honestly don't have don't have a free market. But but I was on the radio show uh, last week and was led to believe uh, some of my research led me to believe that when you looked at the situation with Silicon Valley Bank in California, Signature Bank in New York, they were a bit isolated. 
they were not one-offs, but they were not um, they were not reflective of the banking industry as a whole. So, so I began trying to explore and better understand. And I'm talking about the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, CNBC, Bloomberg, Forbes, Financial Times, the likely suspects. And there's some people out there that you can trust. There's some people out there you can't trust. But but I went back and read um, and, and, and finally concluded, and this would have been about the middle of last week after the, uh, the news broke on Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, that there were somewhere in the neighborhood of $650 billion of unrealized losses in investment securities. I won't bore you with the details about what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, it was really about um, tech startups, uh, their inability to loan money. They made investments in, uh, it was a mismatch portfolio. They invested in T-bills and mortgage-backed securities. And when the uh, when the interest rates began to aggressively raise, they didn't have any hedge. I mean, they, they were so invested in, um, in financial instruments that were going to be significantly devalued as a result of a raising interest rate environment. But I want to go back to the number, $650 billion. I mean, that when I left here over the weekend, I was pretty comfortable that that was going to be the number. I'm, I'm not quite as damn comfortable that that's the number anymore. Um, once again, re- remember unrealized losses on investment securities. I mean, I could hold this up. We got the Fed uh, funds rate. It's correlated with some of these unrealized losses on investment securities. Over the weekend, the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. I'm no big fan of mainstream media. And I guess the problem that I have with the mainstream media is on rare occasions, they show you their ability to be true journalists, to do a damn good job of understanding whatever issue it is. They have resources. They have infrastructure. They have intellectual capital. I mean, they have smart people on staff there. Um, It's a travesty that they've sold their soul um, in deference to one political brand over another. That's not the nature of journalism. That's not reporting um, should be about. I understand that the majority of journalists are, are liberal. I accept that. I'll accept the wink and nod. But but once they become somewhat of a um, an activist agent for one of the political parties, and and really and truly the uh, the uniparty is something I talk a lot about. That means, um, I'll give you Trump as an example. So, so Donald Trump is under attack um, every second of every day by the Democrat establishment. The Democrat establishment are doing everything they can to attack Donald Trump. You would expect the Republican establishment to do everything they can to defend a former Republican president and current front runner in the Republican Party, but that's not the reality. The reality is the the Republican establishment have kind of gotten out of the way and let the Democrat establishment have at it. So Trump is kind of a man on an island. Um, so so you've got a uniparty at work here. So so when I start talking about finance and Wall Street and banking and the financialization of the economy, I'm not accusing one party or another. When someone tells you that the the, the two party system in America today can't agree on anything, that's a lie. I mean, that's simply a lie. The, the two-party system in America today cannot agree on abortion. They can't agree on climate change. They can't agree on gay marriage. They can't agree on education. They can't agree on infrastructure. But they can agree to spend a trillion dollars a year they don't have. I mean, there, there is no doubt about that. And, and it's not in the best interest of the American people, uh, but rather the special interest, the moneyed interest. Uh, the cathedral is what we refer to those um, or that organization um, as. But enough of my, um, my, my, my getting off the exit ramp on the, on the media. Uh, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal did a lot of due diligence, and they refer to two studies. They actually analyzed these two studies that come from Stanford and Columbia University, one of my, two of our more esteemed academic institutions. There were analysis done 
um, that that says instead of the six hundred fifty billion dollar unrealized investment security losses, there's potentially one point seven to two trillion dollars of unrealized losses. That could be cataclysmic. I mean, that could be catastrophic. Remember what two thousand eight felt like. I don't want to ever feel that way again. I told you I'm in business. I've been in business all my life, and the um the knot in your gut when when you sense that the entire system is about to fail is something that I don't ever want to experience again, but we may. And, and I'm not apocalyptic. I'm not one of these doomsdayers. I'm a reasonable guy um, from a town with no stoplights. And, uh, but when you read the Post and when you read the Wall Street Journal, uh, once again, when I left uh, for the weekend, I was fairly comfortable that the number was somewhere in the neighborhood of $650 billion. The Washington Post and Wall Street Journal have convinced me, uh, per these analysis done by Stanford and Columbia, that the number is probably closer to $1.7 and $2 trillion. If that's the number, we've got multiple bank failures. We're going to have a lot more distorting and manipulation of our economy. Uh, the Wall Street Journal um, and this study says, and, and I'll read verbatim, that 186 banks are in distress, possibly to the point of seeking a bailout. The study estimates that hundreds of banks are in worse shape than Silicon Valley Bank. Hundreds have larger losses than Silicon Valley Bank, and hundreds have lower capitalization buffers in case of distress than Silicon uh, Valley Bank. Uh, remember, we're in a raising interest rate environment. I've got a theory that Wall Street Journal nor uh, the Washington Post touched on. If you're a banking executive and you started work in the financial sector in 2008-9, you've never ever done your job in a in a in a raising rate and a raising interest rate environment. And to say there, you know, you got to go from one playbook to another. They they only have one playbook. I mean, if you're 40 years old in the financial sector, if you're 45 in the financial sector, you spent your entire career in a in a quantitative easing. Um, suppressed interest rate environment. Well, all of a sudden, the Fed announces it's no longer going to quantitative ease. It's not buying mortgage-backed securities. It's not um, It's not investing as much fiat currency into the economy to basically distort, manipulate my words again. Um, and, and you're starting to see some people have to earn their money. I'm sorry. I mean, you're, you know, it's, it's pretty, I don't want to say it's easy. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I don't understand synthetic derivatives and, you know, hedges and puts. And I mean, that, that, that's a that's kind of a lingo and a business for um, the high Q graduates of Ivy League institutions that we trusted or entrusted the controls of our financial world to. How's that working out? But um, but but I, I do believe that that once you stop the quantitative easing, once you start aggressively raising interest rates, some of these younger financial gurus ha- have never experienced any of that. And, and I think it's really, um, I think we're having a hard learning curve. And I think we're experiencing a lot of pain and anguish. And I can't imagine what it's like. I mean, uh, wow, look at me and how good I am at this job. Well, damn it, you ought to be good at the job. I mean, interest rates are near zero. We're, we're quantitative eased. I mean, the Fed's pumped $6.3 trillion into the economy in the name of COVID relief. Uh, we, we, we suppress production. We increase liquidity. Uh, what do you think happens there? Let me take a wild guess. You ready? Town with no stoplight, college dropout, inflation, macroeconomic stimulus always leads to inflationary pressures. Not sometimes, not most time, not nine out of ten times. 
Every single time the government macro stimulates the economy, you're going to have inflation. The first time in human history, I went 50 years of my life and never said for the first time in human history. I've said it more in the last decade than I care to, to, to dimension or remember, and the majority of my pronouncements have been relating to what we've done financially as a matter of the Fed, um, the FDIC, any of the um, into the financial sector. When you're talking about the financial sector, once again, Trump, president, affects my life somewhat. Biden, president, affects my life somewhat. This is going to have a direct effect or impact on every single American family. Um, I want to give you a couple of statistics. You ready? Um, last week, the the Fed discount window. Now, that that's the discount window where the desperate banks go. That would be like um, the crack addict selling the, the, I mean, the most treasured possession he has. He's already sold everything to buy more crack. He's an addict. God bless him. He needs help. He can't get his feces consolidated. Um, and he just really and truly is, is crying out for help. The, the addict has one thing. Maybe it's his high school ring. Maybe it's his mom's. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. But, but at some point in time, they sell that. Why? Because they're a junkie. They're an addict. They don't know any other way but to try and sell possessions to, 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 to get their fix and, and, um, and I feed their drug habit. But when you look at the Fed discount window, I mean, that's where desperate banks go when nobody else will lend. Last week, the Fed discount window loaned out about $152 billion. Sounds like a lot of money because it is. Um, remember we talked about 2008 a second ago? Um, at, the, at the height of the 2008 banking crisis, it was about $111 billion. So, so think about 2008, think about the discount window, think about $111 billion, and we know what 08 looked like. We know what 09 and 10 and 11 looked like. Um, well, last week, the Fed, uh, what, $39 billion more at the, um, at the lender of last resort. That freaks me out. I'm not an economist. I'm not a banker. I didn't go to Stanford, didn't go to Duke, didn't go to Vanderbilt. But that freaks me out to know that there are two comparative numbers. There's a case study that shows once the Fed discount window begins lending money out at that rate, there, there's a storm brewing. I mean, there is no way around this. Um, contagion, we hear a lot about that word. I, I could speculate and say the Wall Street Journal's nailed it. There's going to be 186 banks fail. What will the Fed do? What will the FDIC do? What will the Treasury Department do? What will Congress do? I can tell you what Congress will do. Congress will sit on his ass and let the Fed the Treasury, the FDIC, try to fix it because they don't want to take a vote that is critical, controversial, or may put their political well-being at risk. So, so, so here's the crux of the matter. You ready? Here's why it matters to you and I. If the Fed blinks, if the Fed and its and its um and its Fed's fund rate, the benchmark rate, which is what we base a lot of our um financing charges on, if the Fed pivots or pauses, as many expected to, they have paid. Um, respect to the ones that pull the strings. In other words, the, the, the banking sector is in turmoil. There are other Silicon Valley banks. There are other signature banks out there that may be on the precipice of failure, may not be on the precipice of failure. But, but, but if the Fed pivots or pauses, that David basically admitted that they're no longer waging a war on inflation. And that's choosing bankers over workers. I mean, if the financial sector is at risk, I get it. I mean, I understand it. But there has to be some moral hazard. There has to be some realities of the private sector that, you know, that rooster comes home to roost. I mean, if you live irresponsibly, if you don't know how to run a bank, 
then, then you fail and somebody buys the bank for pennies on the dollar and they run it as the bank should be run. But if the Fed pivots, if the Fed pauses, if the Fed calls off the dogs in matters relating to try and curtail or contain inflation, they basically told the average American, hey, we're sorry that hamburger's 20 bucks, but we've got bankers to take care of. That's the anti-democratic uh, part of this economy. Once again, you vote for members of Congress. You vote for U.S. senators. You send those people to Washington to not only decide when a woman can have an abortion, how much money we should spend on education, but economic policy is something that we expect these people to be somewhat accomplished, diligent, and understanding of. And they've simply been asleep at the switch. They've allowed the economic policy making in America to be farmed out to the Fed, the Treasury, the FDIC. And, and once again, if the Fed decides to abandon the inflation fight, it has begun. Because once again, the, um, I think the rate is what, four and a half, four and three quarter, somewhere thereabout. I think the Fed fund rate is somewhere around four and a half if they raise it a quarter point. Yeah, four and a half to 4.75. Um, and they've been fairly desperate in their attempt to try and curtail or contain inflation. But, but guys, we financed a COVID relief plan at $6.3 trillion. We increased the money supply by 40% since March of 2020. I mean, how, how do you fix your mouth to say that? The, the, the largest, most prosperous economy in the history of mankind, basically out of thin air, increased the money supply by 40%. And some of the folks that we trust to make these decisions that relate to our, our, our monetary policy and our, our economic policy, I mean, they use words like transitory and, and fleeting and inflation will rear its head, but it'll be, you know, it'll be, um, it'll be contained quicker uh, that, that we ever met. And we made a grave mistake. I mean, we made a terrible, terrible error. I'm not an armchair quarterback. I'm not trying to second guess anybody's intent or motivation. But, uh, but once again, who didn't see inflation, rampant inflation coming when you once again create $6.3 trillion out of midair? Um, that's why I think this is the central issue facing the American people today. It will have political consequences, no doubt. There will be Keynesian economists that say, well, the modern monetary theory of today uh, is, is something we need to abide by, and if the government owns its own debt, it doesn't matter what that number is. Uh, I, I don't know that. I mean, that's above my pay grade. I don't understand modern monetary theory. I don't agree with Keynesian economists. I'm a free market guy that believes eventually if you spend more than you have over an elongated period of time, there, there is a day of reckoning. I don't know if this is the day of reckoning. I don't know what the other side looks like I do know and I've tried to illustrate the best I know how that when you as members of Congress farm out economic policy and monetary policy and the Fed is responsible for monetary policy once again I would abolish the Fed and figure out another way to, to monitor and manage our monetary policy but th there's no doubt about it but but I think in in closing I want to say this um 2008 was a long time ago and that's the last time I can remember Congress going on the record and agreeing to um, to vote on an economic policy of consequence. We deserve better than that. I mean, you as a voter, we as Americans who trust our three branches of government to, to, to govern the greatest nation in the history of mankind, we deserve Congress to not farm out some of the, um, some of the, the critical components of, of economic policy, and that's exactly what we've done, and it's got us in the, in the biggest damn mess you can imagine. Uh, can we work out of this? I don't know. 
Uh, what is the point of no return? I don't have a clue. It's $35 trillion in federal debt, the point of which we lose our status as the, um, the, the preferred currency of global markets. I don't know. Uh, somebody asked me a while back, what do you think the number one thing to pay close attention to when it comes to you know, our situation financially as a nation? And I think it's the petrodollar. I mean, I really and truly believe that the second the world decides to execute an energy trade in something other than the dollar is the day that a lot of these roosters come home to roost at the same time. And that's a scary proposition. I mean, it really and truly is. Once again, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stop line. I don't have an economics degree from Stanford. I don't have a law degree from Harvard. Uh, I, 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 I believe very little of what they say. They've hardly ever participated in the in the free market of the private sector. They've read a lot about it. They studied a lot about it. They um a lot of their a lot of their scholarly reporting is done as if it were in a flight simulator. And if the numbers don't work out six months from now, we just get back in the flight simulator and and we you know we try to land the plane one more time. That's a hell of a way to run an economy, but it's the way we're running our economy. And it and if we're not careful, guys, we're going to sit out get ourselves in in a position that. Um, that there seems to be a very difficult path forward. There is no e- easy answer to this. I mean, if the Fed decides to pivot and pause, I understand it. I mean, they're trying to save the um, the financial sector, of which we all depend on. But if the Fed decides to pivot and pause, they're basically admitting that they failed in addressing inflation, and the average working-class American is going to have to do the best they can to make ends meet. I want to thank our sponsors. Carolina Bank serves communities throughout northeastern South Carolina, offering a wide range of services to meet every personal or business need from straightforward accounts to complex finances. They're prepared to help you reach your financial goals. Carolina Bank, banking on tradition since 1936. Member FDIC Schofields, Ace Hardware, your one-stop shop for all hardware, paint and lawn and garden needs, plus all things sporting goods, including firearms, safes, clothing, footwear, and more. Pepsi of Florence represent the entire product line of PepsiCo, one of the world's leading food and beverage companies. Pepsi of Florence also serve brands from other great companies such as Dr. Pepper, Canada Dry, Lipton Tea, Gatorade, and various regional brands. Mickey Finn's largest South Carolina liquor wholesaler serving every county in the state, largest bourbon selection statewide. They ship wines to 43 states, opening soon a new beverage warehouse across from Bucky's on I-95 in Florence. They support USC athletics, including Williams, Bryce, and Colonial Life Arena. Marlboro Pete Electric Co-op. If you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the south to build your new plant, consider Marlboro Pete Electric Co-op's new PD Commerce Center, uh, an industrial park located at the I-95 exit in Florence, South Carolina. Check it out at MPDC co-op or pdec.com.